0: clean line design that sets it apart from the look-alike.
1: Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking, right now, on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin.
2: Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today's topic, if tragedy plus time equals comedy, then comedy minus time equals tragedy. We're looking at the business of comedy. (laughs) Joining us today are guests Leah Bonema and Dustin Chafin. Leah is an up-and-coming comic based in New York City. She's appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, IFC's Comedy Crib, and countless other television programs, and is a regular guest on Sirius XM Radio. Leah's been featured in the New York Comedy Festival and a roster of leading festivals, has done two solo shows, and her half-hour comic detective series, Solving Leah, was an official selection at both of the New York and Portland television festivals. Leah is the co-host of Were You Raised by Wolves, the definitive podcast on modern-day etiquette, and she's the author of the novel The Holiday Breakdown, published in November 2020 and now available on Amazon. Our guest, Destin Chafin, is also a stand-up comic, also based in New York City. He's toured with the USO to Korea, Japan, Africa, and Iraq to entertain American armed service members and is a regular on Sirius XM radio. Among his many accomplishments, he's performed in the New York Underground Comedy Festival and he hosted the Bill Hicks tribute show at the legendary Laugh Factory. Dustin has been a staff writer for the Sci-Fi Channel and a contributing writer for a number of television shows. The New York Times said that Dustin is getting laughs every time he speaks and he is regularly headlined at New York's premier comedy venues including Caroline's Comic Strip Live, Danger Fields, and Stand Up New York. Dustin is the host of the podcast, I'll Leave You With This, with Dustin Chafin. Dustin, Leah, welcome to the show.
0: Yay! So uh, I'm always afraid. It's like, which bio is he reading? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know so we the one from 2004. Videos. Like, I'm just always nervous.
2: We, we could <laughs> have gone with Wikipedia, and then you wouldn't yeah. even know what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah.
3: so, I feel like I got nervous at the intro just because uh, business and comedy as comics were sort of like, oh, we have no plan. It's just yeah. caution to the wind.
0: <laughs> well, we're gypsies. We're the gypsies of showbiz. <laughs> That's right. So,
2: <laughs> Well, every, every good gypsy and then certainly every good superhero has an origin story. So Leah, Dustin, uh, we want to hear, how did you get here? What are your origin stories?
3: Oh, um, I'm originally from Northern Maine. Well, I'm a rural lass and I went to university in Montreal. I went to McGill and I actually studied, I studied documentary films. I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, I like storytelling. I, my family growing up, people played a lot of records, did a lot of stories. And then I wrote my thesis in women's studies. Um, and then so when I, so I think I sort of I'm very much into a point of view and sort of talking about things that are important to me. I, I brought that with me when I moved to New York. And then when I got here, I tried a myriad of different, um, you know, I took some acting classes, I did other types of film, and then I actually ended up in a spoken word group Uh, We were called Spoken Soldiers, and it was a lot of storytelling. I actually really loved it. And a woman saw me and wanted to direct a solo show with me. And in the middle of the solo show, she said, hey, could you take a stand-up class to punch this up? And I sort of just immediately fell in love. You know, it's everything. You get to put your point of view across. You get to talk about things that are important. It's live performance. Um, And then after that show run was over, I I threw myself into it. That was, it was, you know, love it.
2: And that's what got you. That's what we're hooked. So, Dustin. Uh, Yes,
0: I too wrote my thesis in women's studies. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I I, um, am from Texas, and... um, I basically uh, joined the Mormon Church uh, when I was in high school to get away from my family, <laughs> and I ended up in uh, South America and as a missionary, and then I ended up at BYU, and uh, that was the first time I ever did stand-up comedy at a BYU talent show, and it was something I always thought about, and I wanted to do, and whatever, and I, I ended up transferring to Parsons Art School in New York City, and I uh, was not sure what I wanted to do. It was either fashion design or art or something. I just knew I needed to be in New York. And I uh, ended up being, I was a busboy at the New York comedy club. And I would sweep up and cook and all this stuff. And I ended up kind of uh, discovering this love for stand-up, which I'd always had in the back. And I just never had the courage to do it, you know, full force like that. And uh, so, yeah, so I would cook and clean for stage time each night. And then I ended up just kind of falling in love with it as well.
2: So, what were you each doing before you pursued stand up? What were you doing for a living?
3: Uh, I feel like I've done a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I worked at a nonprofit, I worked at multiple nonprofits, and then I also was a cater waiter. I bartended. Um, I actually worked at Birdland as a waitress for two years. I've been a ski patroller. Um, I worked on um, film sets. I mean, I really feel like I've had my hand in a lot of things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, my New York job, um, when I was just like pursuing comedy, I was a tour guide on um, so It was one of these cruise things would go around New York City and you just talk about the facts of the Statue of Liberty or Empire State Building. And then, uh, then they would have um, like waiters that were, you know, song and dance people and they would end up doing show tunes and then we would have to kind of like you know, get people on the dance floor and this whole thing. So, I did that for way too long.
2: You, you, were, a hype, <laughs> you were a hype man.
0: I was. And <laughs> yeah, doing the Macarena. I still have flashbacks, you know, (laughs) trying to get, trying to get senior citizens to do the Macarena and the YMCA. Oh, but you know, it was a gig. It was, they paid us, you know, pretty well. And they fed us. So it wasn't bad.
3: Oh, I, I also did this. Reminded me, Dustin's story, especially when you said they fed us, that's really baseline for a lot of these jobs. Do I get fed? I'll be there. Um, I also did. And I, when I got this, I was like, this is it. Um, I did murder mystery dinner theater in New York. And I was like, this is like being on Broadway. And you would get hired for the weekend to show up at these private events. And you would be in the cast, but nobody knew. You would have to, like, mingle. And then you'd get murdered.
2: Well, that's, that's a decidedly uncomfortable <laughs> evening for one table.
3: Yeah. Oh, it's usually two evenings, and but you, I was like, is there free food? I'm there.
2: <laughs> so the the comedian Matt Ruby uh, wrote in a Medium article that the the single question he's asked most of all is why did you get into comedy? And he always has the same answer, and the answer is I got into comedy because I wanted to tell the truth. How did the two of you reach the decision that stand up comedy was what you needed to be doing?
0: Um, yeah, I don't know if I had such a profound, you know, reason for doing comedy. I think it's because I could wear snakeskin ties and hats. And, you know, it was more kind of a rock and roll thing that was I was drawn to. I remember the first comic I really got into was Sam Kinison. And when I was a kid and I feel like. I always had this thing where it was just like, that seems like the coolest thing ever. Like you could just have these say your thoughts and do whatever you want. And I think it was just the fact that there was no boss over you. And it was this very kind of this free flow thing that uh, you could write it. You could direct it. You could, you know, you you were your own star. Like it was just a one man thing. That's what I was attracted to. Just the solo of it. I love.
3: I also think what attracted me was the wanting to talk about things that were important to me. Um, and tell stories that affected my life and sort of have a a group experience like these are things that I've done that embarrass me or that I think don't get talked about and then if I put that out there then other people might feel relieved or like they could laugh at it and um, sort of creates this group experience like um, I feel like one of my earlier comics that I was just obsessed with was Richard Pryor. And he talked about like such personal things, but then was able to make it funny. So it's sort of alleviating sort of some of these things that are so hard in life that we could come together and and laugh at something that's very hard. I find that very attractive about comedy.
0: Yeah, it's also a way to be a rock star when you can't play instruments,
2: you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dustin, you, you mentioned Sam Kinnison um, yes. earlier. He you, played you, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned that you had uh, you had become a member of a religious community. Yes. In in and and, and your first stand up was in was in that experience. Yes. Sam Kinnison famously was a preacher.
0: Yes. Uh, and,
2: and and the religious community he came from really strongly up, influenced his comedy. Do you find the same thing happened with you?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, well, you know, becoming a missionary, like I was one of those guys, Book of Mormon with the name tag and everything. And uh, I was a very shy kid. And so I think being thrust into that world of having to knock on doors in Spanish, by the way, and just kind of, you know, and then we would have to, you know, preach or whatever and during you know Sundays and whatnot and so it got me in front of a crowd I remember I was giving my first lesson at a Mormon church and I got a laugh and I was like oh okay this is this is good and so I've kept every time I would give you know a sermon or whatever it would I would try to be funny because I felt like that was a way to to connect and people always enjoyed it a little more when you added humor into it so yeah it all kind of like came together like that.
2: Hmm. Um, Leah you you talked about Richard Pryor and his his honesty and I was thinking about this today, you know, you can, you can look at a, a, a generational continuum from red Fox to Richard Pryor to Eddie Murphy to Chris rock. And, 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 and that level of honesty doesn't exist through all of them. You know, red Fox was a, was at a time when there wasn't necessarily a place for, for naked personal honesty and comedy. And Richard Pryor really seized that, um, Eddie Murphy, not quite as much, but Chris rock very much. So what, How does how does that dynamic that that honesty about the material and bringing your sense of self and your own life into the art? How has that influenced you as you've as you've matured as a comedian?
3: Um, Great question. Also, all of those comics, I feel like different comics at different times are bringing different parts of themselves. You know, I feel like Eddie Murphy was such is such a strong performer. Um, and then also people at different parts of their lives feel, I think, more able to speak to their experiences also with the given circumstances of the time, um, what culture is ready for, actually I would say Richard Pryor broke through that, but without Red Fox, I don't think anybody else, you know, people cleared for other people. I do think... The interesting part for me about being vulnerable is you have to be at a place where you personally are okay with it because I do believe that the audience feels when you haven't sewn up something in your mind and then they worry for you. Like when I go out to talk about an issue that's um, personal for me, but I want to find a way to make it funny. For me, I've learned that if I haven't made peace with it, the audience tends to not laugh so much because they can tell that I'm not okay. So I do find that when you're hitting topics that you are, are sensitive about, there is the part of you that has to have, already be ready to be like, I'm putting this out there for people and I don't need, you know, because you don't want your, and I do feel like this happens more for women. I may be wrong. I feel like the audience sometimes wants to protect you and you have to be at a place where you can say, I'm okay with this. You know, we're laughing about this. Right. So you have to be, just be ready to laugh at it.
0: Yeah, I also feel the best thing about comedy is much like music. It's, you know, it's very subjective and there's all kinds of types of comedy. You know, like Stephen Wright is not ultra personal, but it's hilarious and people love that. And I mean, Jeff Dunham's probably the most successful of all time and he's got puppets. So there's really there's comedy for everybody. And that's the thing is, it doesn't have to be always be vulnerable. You can just that's the thing is it's for there's a little piece of comedy for, you know, whoever wants, you know, wants it or whatever.
2: So once you've decided to take the leap and make comedy your your life what's what is your first year as a stand-up comic like
3: I got shingles <laughs>
2: <laughs> and um, I became an alcoholic.
3: So
0: <laughs> I left so, the Mormon church and became you know.
3: so rough. I guess it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough.
2: Yeah. 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 So I, what mean, are the, I mean, you what want are the, to
3: get up as much as possible. So right. you're like, I barked for stage time. I would work in front of a club handing out flyers for like five minutes at the end of the show and then you still have your day job. You know, so you're working and then you're technically working at night and you just you're so hot to like get up everywhere. You know what I mean? So you're just like and comedy is one of those things where you have to learn by getting up over and over again in public. Like that's just how it's going to have to work so that, you know, the more time you put in, the better you're going to get.
2: Right. So yeah. and, and, and that's when you're very much in the pay to play side of the business. Right. You are doing something in order to get a couple of minutes on stage just to 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 see. What happens?
0: Yeah, it's your internship, you know? It's like yep. you're just, your mail room or whatever. Like you're, you're slowly getting into it. And so working at a club was always, I was always thought that was the best thing because I hated open mics because a lot of open mics were comics watching you as opposed to an actual audience, you know, a tourist or whatnot. So I feel like that's how you were able to grow is through a real audience.
2: Right. So what are the surprise, what are the things that surprised you most about that first year?
3: Yeah. Um. I. oh that's a good question I, I feel like I'm trying to think back the first year I do think there's this you know some nights it's really horrible even now <laughs> uh, and the that you do keep going and it is like a muscle that you will get better no matter how bad it got you just get up the next time and you learn a little bit on how to deal with that and then you learn a little bit on how to deal with that and so it is this idea that You will get better. You just keep going. And it's sort of in your mind, art is like this magical thing that happens. Oh, these people are talented. And you realize, oh, these people have put time in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the time is important. One thing that I realized is six months in, you know, I was auditioning for CBS and things like that. And so, you have to be surprised, you have to be careful who sees you in the beginning. Because I think the thing is, is like if you get seen and you're not ready for something, that's a whole other thing you have to, you know, worry about. So, I think it's that's that's why I always felt like find a club that you can suck in and, you know, that you could just bomb in and the club that, you know, you could clean up or whatever like Lee and I did, you know. And uh, that's probably the best way to go It's give yourself a couple of years before people see you yeah that audition didn't go very well <laughs>
2: <laughs> no room full of clowns but uh, yeah. but yeah yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> so i was gonna ask how a first year stand-up comic makes a living but it sounds like the answer is not at comedy
3: oh i don't uh, think you're, people are making yeah. a living at comedy for like at least the first decade yeah I mean, would yeah. you say that's fair to say? I mean, that? It, it
0: happens. It just like, you know, he's referring to, you know, a show that I did on my album. I talk about a room full of clowns or whatever. That was actually a paid gig. It's like, you know, you meet people that. But that's the thing. You might you might make money, but you're not you don't really deserve it. And you're not maybe ready for it. But <laughs> I I just had horrible gigs where I actually made money, but I wasn't ready for the gig. So like a New Year's Eve and the Poconos and things that things that I just wasn't ready for. But there's a little bit of money if people, you know, friends of yours or whatnot. It's not you're not going to get industry pay, but you might you know, a a fellow comic might recommend you for something and you might make a little bit.
2: Sure. So you, you touched on this and I want to explore it a little bit. There's a saying that show business is two words because you have to be good at both of them. If, if you're only good at the show, then you're a funny person who doesn't work. And if you're only good at the business, but you're not funny, then you'll get hired once. How do you become good at both? How do you, how do you manage the business, get good at the business side and also perfect your art?
3: I would say that's a work in progress yes. on my end. <laughs> um I do think is some people I think are naturally better at the business side. Like I'm fine at being organized and, you know, that part but Pushing for yourself um, when you're doing something that's so vulnerable, I do find to be a particular skill set that is very hard to like advocate for yourself in a business way because it has to be so separate from how you, all the vulnerabilities you have around your art. So I do definitely think that's a hard, and a lot of it's learning, like talking about learning how to talk about money with people. Um, Like you have to talk to other comics. How much did you ask for this? And, you know, it's really, I find it to be, I find it to be hard. Um, it's a learning curve for me.
0: Yeah, also for the business itself uh, is continually changing. And um, you know, at, at a certain point, there was a time where if you got the Johnny Carson show, your life was changed, or you got Letterman or whatever. And then now, I think business should be slash, you know, social media promotion things like that. So there's a lot of, you know, areas in the business that you have to learn as you go in order to kind of stay in this.
2: Right. So. You've you've been at this for a while. When did you first feel like a real comic? When when did you feel like you had grown into the job?
3: Um, you know, I I think sometimes I I still don't. Um, but sometimes, <laughs> uh, I I, and this also speaks to how random events are. It was at Caroline's doing a, sh- a showcase show for it was like a competition show and. Um, after the show, a man from the Glasgow Comedy Festival came up to me and was like, I loved your set, would love to invite you to do the Glasgow Comedy Festival. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, and then they, you know, they flew you out. And um, i had never had that experience before. And then I got there and I had a little room with a little tea kettle. And, you know, it had like little coffee, ba- you know what I mean? And I was like, I can't believe that. Me telling jokes has me in a hotel in Glasgow right now meeting other comics and it really sort of felt um, humbling and amazing and that was a, a very wonderful moment to me to be like oh I'm, I'm in another country from you know and it came out of nowhere you know people are like you never know when things are going to happen in this business and it's so true and it just it was great.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, definitely um, hotels, even if they're fancy hotels or they have a waffle machine. Like, you know, it's like if someone's putting you up and paying you, that always. Um, you know, television was uh, definitely things, you know, that was a big moment where you just kind of feel validation. But, uh,
2: yeah. Okay. Well, we're talking to Dustin Chafin and Leah Bonham, a comedy professionals, about the business of comedy. Um, so how does a stand-up comics business model change as they as they mature and they advance in the field you know you you, you start at kind of pay to play busking or 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 handing out flyers or cleaning floors hoping to get some some stage time at the end of the night and then as as Dustin mentioned there's a lot of emphasis on on social media and freemium and otherwise called loss leaders you put your, your material out there and 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 build audience And, 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 you know, kind of the gold standard is licensing and endorsements and diversification, you know, the, the sneaker deal. And there's a long road between pay to play and sneaker deal. How, how has it, how how have you watched the business model mature and change as you've come up through the ranks?
0: Yeah, I mean, like I was saying before, it's changed with the social media and whatnot. But I think um, the eye on the prize should always be uh, becoming a great comic because the funnier you are and the, the great set, when you have a great set, that's when your business will kind of, you know, start to kind of like mo- have some momentum. You know, when somebody sees you perform, maybe a you know a good comic or, or you know someone a veteran comic will see you and, and do well on a show, and then maybe they'll have you open for them and things like that. That's how all the bands got started. You know, it's like Van Halen was in front of Gene Simmons, and you know that kind of thing. So I think comedy is very much like that. So I think the focus should always be about being good, then the market. Now, I've seen people that are doing reverse, and in the end. And it does hurt them it may take a while and they may make some money here and there but in the end it does hurt them when they focus more on the business than the actual art
3: and I do think in comedy um, adding to what Dustin said that a lot of work we do is free but we're doing it because we want to be better like we'll do you know get on all these shows because we have this joke that we want to work out um, and that's how you get better at it you're it's like practice
2: yeah so so, how do loss leaders work into this you know using Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, putting free material out there so you can build an audience, build up metrics, build up interest uh, and 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 being able to show that makes you valuable to other outlets so you know that's how you can get shows, it's how you can get specials, it's how you can get headline gigs, it's how you can get hired how does how does that work? I imagine an immense amount of discipline has to go into cultivating and curating this social media presence that's designed to sell you.
3: I, 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 yes. And I think it's, everybody thinks of it sort of as an investment, a it's practice and then B it's an investment for the future. You just have to put this time in. And I do think a part of like being your own boss and a freelancer and an artist is that you're, we're constantly working. You know what I mean? We don't have weekends or nights. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I should try to, I should get this video up on here. I should do a commentary on this. Um, So I think it's being, you are sort of, it's your whole life. Like it's not, as opposed to having a job, you know, my life is being a comic. And so you think of all those things as investments, or at least I do.
0: Yeah, I'm always struggling with this. I feel like it's just something that I'm not naturally good at. And so, I, you know, uh, if I have to go to fiverr.com and try to find somebody to help promote me and, you know, just that kind of thing, uh, you know, I usually try to seek out things. It's something I'm always trying to get better at is the business part of it, of promoting myself.
2: Do you do you have managers? Do you have somebody kind of leaning over your shoulder, poking you, saying, hey, get out there, do this? Uh, go ahead.
0: I have some people working. i kind of had a, a crash and burn with a manager, so it's sensitive. But <laughs> Sorry. But are working on a new one if anybody's out there on Facebook Live. Yeah. And we were just talking about honesty <laughs> and vulnerability.
3: I, I'm currently working with a new manager who I'm excited about, but I do think even with people working for you, I think those people can help you with relationships. They can give you advice, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to create content They can sell something that you haven't made. Um, And it's. I do think they can open doors for you, introduce you to people, but I think it's on the comic to be like, I just tried this. I wrote a new screenplay. I got a new joke. Here's a new five.
0: Yeah, I mean, everything I've ever gotten was because the comic thought it was funny. Pretty much, you know somebody recommended me. And so it's a, it's a big, it's a big, you know, kind of thing that you could use the comics that use each other and help each other and that kind of thing.
2: Okay.
3: So I do think it's th- a very strong community. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I, th- and I would think, I, I would think it would be despite the competition because you all have that shared experience of, of getting to where you are.
3: Definitely. And I do think I'm also a person that thinks like this anyway, but that we're not really in competition with each other. We're in competition to be our most because comedy is great when you're your most unique voice. So if you're competing with somebody to sound the same, then you're not really doing your job.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yep. So once you're a full time comic, how are you making a living?
3: With a lot of prayer and candle lighting,
0: <laughs> a lot of follow up emails. Um, yeah, yeah, a
2: lot
3: of like, woo, just covered this month! Come on, uh, God!" A lot of
0: firehouses and elk lodges, and yeah. um, I was doing parking lot shows before COVID. So, <laughs> <laughs> any gig that's out there, you're taking. You're just you a you're a trailblazer. Constantly, I am. I, you're constantly working. You're following up with clubs, and you know, getting a even you get a hundred dollar spot here and a five hundred dollar spot here, and you're just hustling. You're hustling. You're just you know.
3: A lot on of top of different irons in different fires you yeah. know what i mean you're like i'm gonna do a podcast i'm gonna write this thing i'm gonna you know pick up every gig i can get it's a hustle yeah
2: yeah and 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 where are those gigs coming from you know aside from it, to the extent that you have a regular spot at a regular club or more likely regular clubs on a on a somewhat periodic basis where are those gigs coming from
0: well, people know you. They start, to, once you get to a certain level in your comedy, people know that you're a comic and that you're a headliner and whatnot. And so people are just reaching out, you know, to you from different places. The clubs are actually reaching out or comics of people that, you know, Just it just starts, you know, once once you're known, people start reaching out. So from different places.
2: Okay. Well, we're talking with Cleo Bonham and Dustin Chafin about the business of comedy. We're going to take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. And we come back. How to be funny during a global pandemic. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at gavinsolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. American You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with comedy professionals Dustin Chafin and Leah Bonema about the serious business of making people laugh. Dustin, Leah, we've been in a pandemic for 10 months. All of the traditional ways that comics earn a living have been disrupted. Clubs are closed. Production is curtailed. I want to talk about how your life has changed since the pandemic started. Um, One common theme among gig workers in the entertainment industry is that, you know, they had prepaid travel. They had prepaid accommodations. and, And that compounded the financial hit because not only were they not able to find paying work, but they were out money that they were having exceedingly difficult ways uh, times getting back. Um, what were the immediate economic impacts that the two of you experienced when the shutdowns started?
3: Um, I I think the immediate, well, the immediate is our entire way of making a living is halted. Um, so it was just a rising panic. Also, you know, we're in New York, so we sort of were the epicenter first. So, in the beginning, there was that more worried about, for me, the worry of for us as a general community, you know, wanting to be how you could support the healthcare workers and how, you know, worried about people getting sick sort of overrode my immediate fear of like, but then after that first, like, what are we supposed to be doing, period, you're like, oh, I've lost my entire means. Of making a living and I only have you know it's it is a gig economy that's that's a great way to put it and you know you only have so much time and you in your bank account for bills so you're like I have to find an alternative way of making money in this amount of time or I'm gonna have to move back into my mother's house as an adult and I mean that's it's embarrassing to say but that's exactly what it is and so you just sort of dig in.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of panic for sure. And uh, there was there was quite a bit of uh, outreach, I feel, um, in the comedy community. Um, there were quite a few organizations and comedy clubs that were trying to give back and help comics in the time of need. And, you know, so I was grateful for that. But, uh, yeah, we just, you know, you were just like, you didn't know what to do. I mean, I remember, you know, at the beginning, it was just I, I could see it happening. So we I felt like it was we got to see it coming a little bit. Like, you yeah. know, in New York, people are starting to, you know, just come to comedy clubs less and less. And it just it started to happen. So we're a little prepared for it. Not much, though. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I was at a gig. Um, <laughs> I think it was the beginning of March. And I got a phone call from I was at a benefit. And somebody said, hey, somebody who was at that benefit has COVID. And this is like sort of at the beginning. And then I was like, what is my responsibility You know, I didn't touch the person. I didn't know who the person was. But then I called the next gig where I was at, and I was like, I just got this phone call. You know, we didn't have any of the facts at that point. And I called them, and they were like, oh, don't worry about it. You know what I mean? And then I went to this other gig, and I was extremely careful. I, like, hand sanitized um, everything. And everybody, I stayed away from everybody, but everybody was like, you know, people get drunk at comedy shows. They keep wanting to touch you. And you're like, we all need to start being – significantly more careful than this. And then at that moment, I was like, I can't, you know, this is not a, this is not a uh, live performance. It's too, people aren't ready to not touch people. We share the microphone. We, you know what I mean? So I immediately was like, I think I'm going to have to stay. I'm going to have to pull the plug um, until we find out what the science is behind this, because I feel sort of responsible for everybody in this
0: room. Yeah, my last couple of weeks in March, I was just using my own microphone. Like, I would just go up on stage and plug it in and, you know, just, you know, that kind of thing. So, and that was just weird. Like, we were all, it was all in our heads, but we were still going along with the comedy stuff. And that was a weird moment as well. Yeah. So you also
3: feel like you want to, if people want to go out, you want to make them laugh. And like, but then you're like, you know, eventually I was like, okay, this seems like we're heading in a direction. I should lock myself inside.
0: And then outside of New York, there's people that just, you know, it's not not like COVID's even happening, you know, so it's there's that, too. And I've done some gigs right at Arizona and places where, you know, it was just really sketchy the entire time. And you're like, is it worth it? And that's that's something you have to think about to yourself, even if you even if there is a gig available during these times. Is it worth it?
3: Right. And I do see people being like, and of course, uh, we don't want to overload the hospitals and we don't want to be participating in the spread of something. But a, a lot of people will be like, why are people leaving their homes? And you want to be like, well, some people's entire income is based off leaving their homes. So we're making a decision, you know, with higher stakes. We can't, but then that's when this being like, I can find alternative revenue streams and, uh, you know, during this period of time.
2: Right. But it wasn't in many cases, it wasn't so much finding alternative revenue streams as it was creating them from a whole cloth. It was creating something that hadn't been there before. You, know, you didn't you didn't have a vibrant comedy market based around a, a comic, a Venmo account and Zoom. Before, before yes. the pandemic. Yes. So so how did that look for the for, for each of you? How was recreating a revenue structure at that point in time and, and how has it played out?
0: Yeah, I feel um, it was definitely a time to adapt and figure it out. And uh, I think those of us that have been in the business for a while, we have all these skills and things we've learned. And for me, it was um, as I was doing a lot of Zoom shows, um, I realized the bar was kind of low on material, meaning that it was a way for me to kind of work out new stuff. And so, I treated it like that. It was an opportunity for me not to worry about the A stuff, just start churning out material and so I would do a lot of Zoom shows and a lot of them weren't paid. Some of them were maybe tip or, you know, make a little bit of money here and there. I did a couple of things that would make money, but most, most of it was just me working out material. And then after a couple of months, I realized I kind of had a new act. And I was like, you know, this is pretty cool. I have all this material. And then I came up with the idea. I was just like, um, maybe if I could record it as an album. Um, I know that my first album um, that I was able to make money off of it putting it on Sirius XM. So, my whole thing was like if I could just get an album and get it on Sirius, then I would be in a better spot since I can't tour like I was. I could just get it on there in rotation and then I could make about the same amount of living. And so, that was the goal for me was to do a Zoom album and um, you know and just if I could just get this thing. I did a couple of shows and it went well and we recorded it and it sounded good enough and it is on Sirius now. And so it was like, you know, it was something, a big goal that I had for myself and I was able to get it out there, do it, execute it. And uh, it really worked out. And that was, the thing is, if unfortunately this is a moment that maybe I wouldn't have kind of created new material like this if I hadn't been in this pandemic. So there is a silver lining, unfortunately, you know, what had to happen, you know, is, is not, you know, right, but it's, you know, I was excited that I was able to pull this off. So the Zoom album is what I did.
2: That's fascinating. So, I was going to ask you how much material, like what, over what period of time did, did you create the material to go into that album?
0: It was probably the beginning of, I guess, March 17th when they shut everything down after St. Patrick's Day. I was started doing a lot of Zoom shows. So probably uh, the four months, three, four months. I was just, every time I would do a Zoom show, I'd do a brand new set. So that's, let's say you do three a week. So it was just, I was just churning out so much, you know, just over that time. So probably three to four months.
2: That, that's incredibly aggressive. I mean, that's a really short period of time for, for that amount of material.
0: Yeah, it was, you know, it was just something that I knew if I just kind of worked on it, I could. And the best thing about Zoom, you can have a cheat sheet. Nobody sees, you know, the poster board over here. So, so there are advantages to new stuff you can kind of, you know, it's, there's not a crowd looking at you the whole time. So, you know, you take advantage of it. And I enjoy the the Zoom experience. You know, there's really? a lot of comics that don't like it. I enjoy it. It's the best commute in the business.
2: You know? <laughs> and, uh,
0: you know, if you're bomb, you're not on the subway with your thoughts. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) just you know close your laptop and go to the refrigerator you know it's like it's it's not the worst thing in the world and you can mute people that are heckling you and there's you know there's a whole list of things that aren't that bad about it and i really feel it's not going away even after the pandemic i think we're going to kind of keep a little balance between kind of the tech world of comedy along with the live stuff so i think it was something i was happy that i kind of jumped into and just held on and like figured it out
2: interesting leah what about you
3: well, I always say up top, uh Dustin, I think that's such an incredible accomplishment. Huge congratulations. Thank you. Um I you know, nobody has done a Zoom album before. So I think it's, you know, not only a lot of hard work, but imaginative. You know what I mean? You're like, how can I do this new thing? And I think it's really cool. Um and a part of what Dustin I think as comics and doesn't uh, disagree with me if I think that we deal with situations by stand up so like we need to get online and sort of get be on with other comics and, you know, because we're sort of irreverent about situations. So instead of like laying on the floor in you know, dirty clothes for a week, you're like, I need to make a joke about this with people who are also slightly irreverent in order to heal and deal with it. So there's that part of just keeping up the comedy muscle for emotional therapeutic reasons, because I think this is a part of our, of who we are, how we deal with things. Um, so I definitely stayed on Zoom for that also. like Every time I'd be like, I don't want to, I don't feel emotionally available enough to do a show, and then I would do the show, I would always feel so much better afterwards. I was like, oh, this is who I am. This is how I process. Um, you know, and I got, I've gotten a few good new jokes this year I feel good about. I also use this time to try projects that I wouldn't have done, I think, because I You know, when you're doing stand-up, you're constantly, like, every night you're getting on the subway, you're booking your next shows, you're working on your joke, You're so you're constantly going, 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 and there's so much. And then here, we're all stuck in our apartments, um, and I have a penchant for Hallmark Christmas movies um, and romance novels that I read on the subway. I actually, like, have a whole bunch of jokes about them because I find it so shocking that somebody who's, like, such a hardcore murder mystery sci-fi girl – would love these books. Um, So I got very sort of, I didn't know what to do in like April. And I'd been writing this sort of horror movie that was about women killing people, uh, which is much more my style, much more my comedy, uh, sort of uh, what if women were the violent ones. And then I was like, I can't really write this right now because I'm in such a, I need an escape. I need something happy. And so I was like, Hallmark Christmas movies. And then I was like, I'm going to write, a comedy book based off of that arc, that story arc where you know, everything's going to be okay, where it's a happy ending. And so I just threw myself into, you know, writing a novel and I'd never done it before. And I was like, I also feel like outside of the pandemic, I would have felt too, um, you know, I don't know how to write a book. And outside the pandemic, I would have been like, this is, I'm going to embarrass myself if I put it up. You know what I mean? I'm not an author, but because we're in a pandemic and I feel like the world's on fire, I was like, "Eh, I'm just going to throw it up there. We'll see what happens.
2: So perhaps putting the the fallacy to the notion that you know, a a comic has to be in a live audience because it needs the tension of the live audience or a book takes a long time to write. Um, The two of you basically responded to the pandemic by writing an album's worth of material and recording it and writing a novel.
3: Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: Is it everyone? Is it everyone doing that? <laughs>
2: Great. Um, I'm going to adjust all of my perceptions of, 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 of how good of a life I lead and how productive I am. Thank you.
3: I feel like anxiety can really get a person going. You know yeah. what I mean?
2: Yeah. That's, that's what I'm going to be thinking about when I wake up at 3 a.m. now. Good. Um, so on, on Zoom performances and, and, and other, I guess, pandemic-centric performances, there's a fundamentally different consumer psychology behind paying for, for what they might see as a substitute show versus buying a ticket for a live show, going in, buying a couple of drinks, eating the fried food, and, and listening to a few hours of comedy. Uh, Upright Citizens Brigade famously uh, said, you know, free to get in, pay to leave. <laughs> how, how, do you, how does revenue work? How does pricing work? How do you get paid for, for these new types of events?
3: Uh, well, they are live. I mean, they are live shows. They're not, you know what I mean? People are all logging on. It's all live. And as Dustin was saying earlier, it's different. Like some things are like private events where people are, you know, people still need comics for their holiday parties. Or so people, that's that's different pricing, just like in real life, where if it's like a corporate gig, they want you to be clean. It's for a specific group. So people pay more. But for like seven o'clock Zoom shows, some of them are free. Sometimes people just tip. Sometimes it's like 20 bucks. Um, but I think comics are, except for like the gigs that are more corporate or for functions, I would say that comics are more doing those other shows to keep being a comic, to keep that part of us alive to, so we don't you know, fall into the abyss of depression.
0: Yeah, like did you see the Rolling Stones when they did, uh, they did their Zoom they did a zoom and it was like a song they did together. And, you know, it's like, I think all artists just kind of need to perform like you were saying. And yeah, we both did some nice, you know, corporate stuff that helped out a little bit, but a lot of it is, yeah, it's just like going down. You'll see like Dave Chappelle will drop into a comedy club, you know, pre COVID and work on a set, you know, because he needs it for the, and that's how you have to treat almost all these things. You're just working it out. So when we, when everything is open again, we're ready and we're not rusty, and we're still having we have new material. And I mean, there's some people that are just waiting for it to all be over, and they're not doing any comedy. And I'm just I just know that for me personally, I have to keep writing, or you know, it'll just uh, I'll lose that muscle. Right. Like you said.
2: So and what, what's clear is that what the audience sees as entertainment, the artist sees as workshopping and woodshedding and and perfecting the material and working things out.
0: Yeah, and I think they're on board with that. I think yeah. they, I think most people know who are logging into a comedy show on a Zoom. They, they know that's what they're going to get, you know. And, and I think you know it's kind of understood that we just kind of are working it out and whatnot. And they're, they're pretty, they're, they're embracing you, right. you know. It's a good energy.
3: Yeah, and I do feel that. And this is actually something that took me a long time as a comic um, to get comfortable with a part of the amazingness of comedy is that you are live. And if you speak to the honesty of the moment, I feel like it goes so much better. So like the first zooms I logged into, I would be like, I haven't talked out loud in days. I would just say that up top because a part of your fear is like, what if I forgotten? And then everybody sort of takes a deep breath because everybody at home is also yeah. dealing with all the same fears, yeah. you know? And then you just are like, Oh yeah. And then you kind yeah. of go through it collectively. Like, You know, we're all in it together.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it is weird. I mean, you feel like you're doing comedy, you know, into an intercom, you know, like a <laughs> Grubhub comedy or something like, it's just weird. You're looking and you don't know if you should look at the, you know, the grid where you see everyone looking at their phones or if you should just do comedy to your own face. <laughs> right. So it's like, it's like this weird. you just, like Leah said, you just make fun of it. And then I remember when I first started doing crowd work on a zoom, that's when it opened up for me. Like I started making fun of the things that were on people's walls and just kind of made fun of, you know, was able to do crowd work in the Zoom. And that's when I it opened up and I was having a good time with it. That's when I was relaxed and started having fun. And you do hear the laughter. It sounds like Darth Vader laughing or something. <laughs> <laughs> but you hear it. You hear it.
2: <laughs> so you, you touched on this earlier. Every comedy show, at least from the audience perspective, it starts with a certain electricity. And, and for the audience, unless it's a comic that they have experience with, there's always this certain buzz where where the audience is kind of collectively wondering if is this person going to tank? Are they going to be awesome? <laughs> you know, what are we going to talk about tomorrow? Are We going to talk about this at all? Or are we going to talk about how great they were? Or are we going to talk about how they're on the subway with their feelings? Yeah. What kind of clubs are you going to? <laughs> <laughs> so how you know how does that electricity? How does that dynamic change in this environment? Leah, you talked a little bit about you know kind of putting the awkwardness and your feelings of like is the first time I've actually spoken to another human being in two days, you know, putting that out up front, getting the elephant in the room acknowledged and and making it part of moving forward. But how do you deal with the, the change in audience dynamic that there, that, that you're not in the room, that, you know, half the audience may be looking at their phone and you may be looking at yourself. How have you dealt with that change?
3: Um, I think I've, comics to our benefit we have dealt with that in real life in a real oh, room yeah. there's people looking yeah. at their phones Still there's people looking. talking <laughs> loud you know what i mean there's people walking yeah. in and out so that is actually a skill set that we were able to bring to this yes. yeah. um <laughs> and i do think there's a part of you know i say it out loud and then i think that's not what i meant but there's a part of this where it's like sometimes i say to myself would i yes this is an ideal in many ways but i would rather do it than not. So I'm just going to get over that hurdle of it not feeling the same way and find a way to make it work because I want want to do this. Um, And sometimes it means like throwing your hands up in the air and like doing a dance or being like, wow, or, you know, but I do think that as comics, we actually have the skills to make this format work because we're so used to things constantly going wrong.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah and the people enjoy it too i mean it's, it's people are starving as much as the comics are starving to be in front of people telling jokes people are starving for any sort of entertainment and so this is it i mean it's like how much netflix can you watch you know they want something that feels live that feels interactive and so you know they're you know and i think leah actually told me in the beginning she's like you just have to kind of like Just be upbeat and give them that energy, you know, that you're happy to be there because it's like that translates and they feel it and this whole thing. And so that's where the electricity can actually happen. Believe it or not, it can happen.
1: Yeah, I've
3: I've gotten more nice messages from people during the pandemic audience members than I have prior because I think (laughs) they've so desperately needed an escape um that people reach out and be like oh, yeah. i needed that
0: they appreciate you a little more yeah yeah
3: and that when i have like an anxiety spiral and i think i did that wrong or i said something stupid or i try to remember that um not to make it about me you know what i mean
2: yeah so early in the pandemic a survey of comedy clubs in in the united kingdom had half of all of those venues saying they didn't expect to survive the pandemic new york city may be an outlier but this type of impact could exist across the United States as well. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Do you think that this business, the the club and venue centered comedy, do you think it's going to go back to what it was or, or, or if it's going to reemerge fundamentally differently, what do you think it's going to look like?
0: Um, Well, we have lost a few comedy clubs in Manhattan. Dangerfields was my home club. Um, That one broke my heart. And so that club was around for 50 years and they weren't able to, you know, uh, stay open. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, comedy is one of these kind of dregs in the barrel kind of businesses, unfortunately. I, I feel like it will... You know, people will be, you know, probably starting it a little earlier than it should. And I think there'll definitely, (laughs) there'll be comedy. Comedy will happen before everything else. My opinion is when The Lion King is sold out, everything else is sold out. Like every, it just takes when Broadway's back and tourism is back. So it really depends on tourism, I feel. I mean- you know, Lee and I talked a little bit before, you know, with the tech stuff, I think, you know, there will be more, there'd be like pay-per-view comedy will probably be happening within the comedy club. So people will be able to stay home because I think a lot of people are going to be shelter shocked. They're not going to want to just run out just because government says that everything's okay. People know not to trust that. So I think it's, it's going to be a while. I say a few years before comedy's really back in New York, places like New York.
3: Um, I I tend to think it's, I think people will be anxious. It'll be different, but I think it'll come back probably a little earlier than in my opinion, just because I do think um, smaller art venues will just climb back. People will find a way, but I do agree with Dustin that it will be different and it will take a long time. Um, But I do believe like live performances, I I feel like a part of our humanity and we're going to figure it out. We're going to make it work.
2: Yeah. So... Leah I, 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 want to say thirty seconds, vent or repent, but I. Uh, oh yeah, let's. Uh, We're raised
3: by wolves. Shout out. That's, right. that's it. We're leading into our Patreon. If anybody wants to join.
2: <laughs> um, thirty <laughs> seconds closing thoughts.
3: Go ahead, Dustin.
0: Um, yeah, well, thanks for having us. Um, I, I love talking to somebody that actually knows business as a performer. So and then the fact that you're an artist as well, I may feel like it's nice. Thanks for the questions, because then it helps me kind of figure out maybe where my road is headed in comedy. And I think as if you're a performer watching this, I think you just have to be innovative and you have to keep an upbeat and just, uh, you know, just know that you if you just perform and just create, then things, you know, things will be better for you, I feel.
3: I would like to uh, echo what Dustin said. Thank you so much for having us. It's really great to see these questions because you're like, oh, thoughtful and how we think about things. Um, and I do think if, if people can find a way to create something, maybe it's something different than they normally do because I, it's so great. What's great about art is we have as many voices as possible out there, you know, being their most self. And I think it's important. It keeps everybody going.
2: Well, thank you. Leah and Dustin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your stories and making us smarter about the serious business of making people laugh. Our guests have been comedy professionals Dustin Chafin and Leah Bonema. Leah is on the web at LeahBonnema.com, and she's at LeahBonnema on Twitter. Her podcast is Were You Raised by Wolves? Dustin is on the web at DustinChafin.com and is at Dustin underscore Chafin on the Twitter machine. His podcast is In Case You Missed It. Their podcasts are available wherever podcasts are sold. You can find links to their podcasts, websites, links to Leah's book, The Holiday Breakdown, and their show schedules in the show notes on our website. Join us next time as we explore the business of the sovereign citizen movement. Was the constitutionally authorized U.S. federal government secretly replaced by a government formed under admiralty law? No. Does the government secretly hold escrow accounts for each person with $630,000 in each account? Of course not. Is the supreme authority of the land the county sheriff? Almost certainly not. But there are a lot of people who believe these things, and they've used these beliefs as a basis for massive tax fraud schemes. And people are selling this belief system as a remedy to the otherwise unsuspecting. Next week on Business Disrupted, Render Unto Caesar. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Chellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and original music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group PR and social media by Kara Munger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network.
1: Thank you for tuning in to business disrupted be sure to join ted gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next monday at 1 p.m pacific time and 4 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel until we speak again have a great week